Um, <clears throat> okay. You know, there are, um, there are words and phrases if you grow up in a Christian home uh, and you grow up kind of part of the church, there are words and phrases that, uh, that sort of get said and assumed, and you kind of know what they mean, right? Stuff like um, uh, being born again, or we're just waiting on the Lord, or God works in mysterious ways, or, well, what this is is spiritual warfare, um, or that person is really on fire for the Lord. You know, you, you, you let these freight, it's kind of Christianese stuff that rolls off your tongue, and, and you kind of intuit what they mean, but they don't, you don't necessarily have, or you haven't necessarily ever thought about what they actually mean. For example, um, being saved. I got saved. You must be saved. If you're not a Christian... And you hear that kind of language being used. I wonder what you must think. Well, what do you mean, be saved? Saved from what? How do I get saved? What do, what do you need to be saved for? All that kind of stuff. It must pop up in your head as, as a strange thing to talk about this thing called salvation. Meanwhile, salvation is sort of the heart of Christianity. That's what it's all about, being saved. What does that mean? You go to the New Testament and you get all kinds of propositional explanations about what salvation actually is. What I mean by that is, is Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, they will explain what salvation is in propositional terms, in logical terms. What's great about the Old Testament is, is that you get these stories that are pictures of what salvation is, is and there is no more seminal more profoundly beautiful, more extremely accurate picture of what salvation actually looks like than the story of the Exodus, the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, let me warn you right at the outset, we read the second half of the, uh, the, the, the chapter because it's pretty long. The whole sermon is actually on the whole chapter, so if you've got an app or whatever and you're following along, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter of Exodus chapter uh, of Exodus 14, not just the second half. But what we're going to see here is that the crossing of the Red Sea is like God's signature move in terms of how he saves people and what it means to be saved. Signature move. You know Michael Jordan, those of you old enough to remember when he played, he, his signature move was his fadeaway jumper, you know? When he hit that, when he unleashed the fadeaway jumper, it was almost impossible to block, and he hit it, nailed it most often, and you would lose if his fadeaway jumper was hot. You were, you were dead in the water playing against him. Well, this is God's signature move, and it shows up over and over again to varying degrees and in various ways throughout the whole Bible. But every other time you see it in the Bible, it's a reflection on this event. So if you go to Psalms, if you go to Proverbs, if you go to the other prophets, what you'll see is that over and over again, the biblical writers reflect on this moment as the way to describe what it is God has done for his people. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to th look at three things. I'll just tell you right now. 
These are not, I didn't come up with these three things. Every single commentator on this passage that I consulted saw these three things, so they must be very, very obvious. I'm just using more, my, kind of my own language. We're going to see in this passage sort of the object of salvation. We're going to see in this passage um, the accomplishment of salvation, and then we're going to see in this passage the means of salvation. Those three things, and let's go to work. Let's have a look. So first of all, the object of salvation. What is it? What is it God saved people from? What did he save Israel from? What does he save us from? I mentioned that we only read the second half of, of chapter 14 from 15, verse 15 onward, and so let me fill you in on what has happened so far. Uh, in the first part of the book of Exodus, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt, and they cry out because of their oppression, and God hears them, and he decides to save them, so he sends Moses in there to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Pharaoh, of course, says, no, I'm not letting them go, so what does God do? He unleashes all these plagues on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians, to the point where finally Pharaoh says, I've had enough of this, the Israelites are allowed to go. Now, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal because, remember, the Israelites were the workforce of the nation of Egypt. They were the, basically the economic engine of the nation of Egypt, and they had enriched themselves on the backs of the Israelites to the point where the Egyptians are basically the most powerful nation in the world. And now they're letting that economic engine go. By this time, the Israelites are up to about two and a half million people. So when they leave Egypt and they start going in the desert, it's like a traveling city, okay? And God leads them out, it says, via a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. So this pillar was in the shape of, or, or it manifested itself as smoke during the daytime and fire during the nighttime. Now, when I was a kid and I read about the pillar of fire, I thought, in the pillar of smoke, I thought of it like kind of like a, like maybe like these pillars here in the sanctuary, you know, this straight, tall thing uh, that you can really see, you can see from really far away. And it, maybe it's like a torch or, or a flaming candle or something like that. But you know, Psalm 105 says that this pillar of smoke gave the people shade during the day as they traveled and gave them heat at night while they traveled. So this is shade and heat for 2.5 million people. So, so this pillar of fire and this pillar of smoke was probably more like a tornado than it was like a pillar. It was huge. And it brings the people of Israel to the Red Sea. Now, the first couple of verses of chapter 14 basically explain where the Israelites are. And when you read it, you discover that God has brought them to this place where they have the sea right in front of them. They have mountains on one side. They have mountains on the other side. And then back behind them, there's open land. But unfortunately, Pharaoh is coming from that open land, meaning that God has hemmed them in where they're stuck and they have no way out. Meanwhile, back in Egypt... Pharaoh has sort of come to his senses and said to himself, what have I done? Like, I let all these people go. My empire is going to be at risk as a result of this. I'm changing my mind. Let's go get them. So he says, saddle up, boys. And they 
have 600 chariots. This, by the way, is why the Egyptians were the superpower that they were. They were the people with the chariots, okay? Nobody else had this technology yet. It's all about the technology, people. And they saddle up their chariots, and off they go to chase down the Israelites and bring them back. Now, what does all of this show? We're set, set up here. What is, what, is all, what is the point of explaining all of this? Israel were slaves in Egypt. That means they were in bondage. That means that they were under the control of the Egyptians. They had absolutely no freedom at all. And so when God came uh, to, to, let the, to bring them out, he was rescuing them to freedom. At the heart of the Bible's idea of salvation is this concept. Being freed from bondage. The Bible says that we are slaves. The Israelites were literal slaves, okay? They were... <laughs> Did you guys catch that at home? Right. The, the Israelites, the Bible says, were literal slaves, obviously. They had the Egyptians and, and the Pharaoh all uh, controlling them, etc. But... The Bible says that you and I are slaves as well. The Israelites were controlled by Pharaoh. He decided what they could do and what they couldn't do, and he had the power of life and death over their lives. And the scriptures teach that you and I are slaves to sin, where sin controls our lives and has the power of life and death over us as well. So, for example, in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says this, Don't you know... That when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, hear that? You used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed, you, claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. What Paul is saying is, is that at one point we were slaves to sin, but now we are free from that, and we are now slaves to righteousness. Now, you might think to yourself, I don't really understand that. What do you mean that I was a slave to sin? I don't feel like a slave to anything. I don't feel like anything controls me, has power over me, or anything. But, but consider for a minute. We all know that we should not lie, right? We all know that we should not lie. We all know that we ought to love justice and fairness in our society. We all believe, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or an atheist or a Buddhist or a Hindu or whatever, we all believe that we should live by the golden rule, right? Treat others that the way, the way that, they, that you want to be treated. We all believe that we should be generous with our stuff and with our money and with our possessions and, and with our time. We believe that we shouldn't kill. We believe that we shouldn't murder. We believe all these things. And all the different religions believe them. And all the different non-religious systems of thought believe them. Of course, we agree on sort of all these ethical principles. And yet, people don't do it. We know what we should do, but we don't do it, even though we agree 
by and large, as, as the world population, by and large, maybe not on absolutely everything, but, but on the basic principles of how we ought to live and treat one another, we all agree, and yet we don't do it. The world is screwed up. There are people lying and stealing and killing and, and, and being selfish all the time, including you and me. Why? Why? And the answer is, the Bible says sin is not just an action, okay? Sin is a power. Sin is a power. Every time you sin, you destroy your ability to resist that sin in the future. And you make it easier for you to commit that sin in the future. The mo- in other words, the more you do it, the easier it gets. Um, Jess and I, we, uh, we were, we were um, landlords for a very short period of our lives. It was horrible. Any of you who are landlords, more power to you. It is not an easy job. We were landlords, and we, uh, we needed the tenant bad. We had mortgage payments to make, and so, in all honesty, we messed up, and we did not vet our tenants very quickly. They flashed the cash, and we said, okay, you're in. The tenant we had, this guy, was what you would call a pathological liar. That's someone who basically lies instinctively, okay? And it was really weird because he would lie even when it, there was no advantage to lying at all. Like he wasn't about to be in trouble for something, it wasn't going to be an argument between, you know, your landlord and your tenant, anything like that. He just instinctually lied about everything. And how did he get that way? Well, the answer is, is that... When he lied, it became easier to lie and harder to resist lying to the point that where, where he basically became a liar. And scripture teaches that when you lie with your mind, you, you, you affect your mind, you corrupt your mind, you shrivel your mind's ability to reason going forward. When you sin with your heart and with your emotions, you shrivel your heart and your emotions to the point where you begin, where, where, where you can, can't resist these kinds of sins. When you sin with your will, you shrivel up and dissolve your willpower and your self-control, which means that sin destroys your freedom. And it enslaves you the way that addiction does. Anybody who's ever been addicted to a substance understands very, very well what this is talking about. Because someone who's been addicted to substance, this is how it basically goes. You, you, you see in the substance, it promises you something. Some kind of relief. Some kind of pleasure hit. Some kind of satisfaction. And so you offer yourself to it, and you say, okay, I'll take that substance in order to to experience that relief or that pleasure hit or that satisfaction. But what you discover is over time, you say, well, now I'm not quite getting what I thought out of it. It's not working as well as I could, and you want to quit, and the addiction, the substance says, no, you're mine now. And it has a grip on you and a hold on you that, that you are powerless to break. Now, listen, It looks devastating in the lives of those who are addicted to serious substances, right? Things like like alcohol and um, drugs and and that kind of stuff. But this can happen to us when when we are given over to food, when we are given over to gambling, when we are given over to nicotine, when we are given over to any number of things. 
The point is not how devastating that addiction is in our lives. The point is, is that when you are addicted to something, it rules you. You are enslaved to it, even though you're a willing slave. Even though you've offered yourself to that thing, it now has power and control over you. And Scripture teaches that that's how sin works in our lives. It's not the only way sin works in our lives, but it is a major way that sin works in our lives. Look at how Israel behaves in this story. Israel gets wind of Pharaoh coming, and they completely freak out. And so what do they do? They go to Moses. Now remember, I told you, uh, we didn't read all this, but it's, it's here in the chapter. So listen to this. The Israelites come to Moses, and it says in verse 11, they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt and you brought us, that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to bring us, or sorry, what have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now note, okay, the Israelites were in Egypt. They saw the plagues. They were there. Frogs raining down and coming out of the Nile River. Boils. Animals just dying. Locusts coming through. Darkness descending and firstborns dying. They are there for all of that. They see it all. They witness it all. And then when Pharaoh says you can go, there they are with a massive pillar tornado of smoke leading them through the desert. And then at night, the thing is a blazing inferno leading them through the desert. So they've experienced all this. They have every reason to trust God, okay? And think to themselves, well, if the, if the Egyptians come to get us, we'll be fine because God's got us. He's demonstrated that just very, very recently, and he'll do it again. But no, they are terrified, okay? Terrified of Pharaoh. Why? Why are they still so scared? It's because of the power of sin in their lives. They're behaving like slaves, even though somehow, objectively, they're, they're free. Like, to some degree, they've escaped. They're not all the way out, we'll get to that in a minute, but they are on their way out, and nevertheless, even though they're on their way out and objectively free, they still, subjectively, in their experience, behave like slaves. And this is a tremendous insight, okay? Um, you can be objectively free, but still behave like a slave, Look at their talk. You told us when we were in, or when you came to us in Egypt, what did we tell you? We said, leave us alone. No, they never did. They never did. They say, slavery would be better. It'd be better to, to live as a slave than to die in the desert. In only a chapter or two later, when they're in another tough spot, the Israelites are going to say to Moses, you know, when we lived in Egypt, we had pots of meat to sit around, and we were we were living high on the hog. It was awesome. They begin to sort of romanticize their slavery. It's like Stockholm Syndrome. You ever heard of Stockholm Syndrome? Uh, when someone gets kidnapped, what can happen sometimes is that they, they psychologically ally themselves with their captors. So the victim starts to believe in and trust and like, adore, appreciate they're captors. It's a really weird thing. But this is what the Israelites are doing as they're trying to escape 
their slavery. They're, identif- they're romanticizing their slavery and they're romanticizing their sin because you see, you can sometimes be objectively free from sin and act as though you are still a slave. Let me explain this to you. I'm stealing an illustration from Martin Lloyd-Jones who was a preacher in the 20th century. He has this wonderful illustration and he says, you know, um, African Americans were enslaved in the United States for many, many, many generations and then Uh, As a result of the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, African Americans were freed throughout the United States. And so if you were living on a plantation in Georgia, you went from slave to free. But the problem is, is that because you had lived like a slave for many, many generations and it was ingrained into your way of life, you didn't just like walk off the plantation and go into town and, and when, a, when a, a, a white man was coming down the street, hold your head high and say, I'm free, I'm allowed to be here too. No, you behaved like a slave. You would still hang your head and you would still be deferential because that was so deeply ingrained in you. And you can even begin to romanticize the sin that you have been a part of. That's a a bit of a different point, but let me get back to it. Um, Every time you rationalize your sin, you're doing the very same thing. You're behaving like you are still under the power of sin, even though that power has been broken. So, for example, you say things like, I had to lie because... Or you say, well, you know, everybody looks at that stuff. Can't be that bad. Or you say, well, I'm not as bad as someone else. This is something that I, 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 uh, I would do um, when I fail as a husband or as I, I fail as a father. Um, I say to myself, well, you know, okay, I didn't do that very well. I'm not handling that very well. But I'm, in the grand scheme of things, I'm, st- I'm a pretty good dad. I mean, I'm a pretty good husband. I mean, I'm not Mark, right? Hey, come on, laugh, guys, come on. Uh, 9 a.m. crowd, I killed it with them. They loved it. Um, you, try to, you try to compare yourself to others and say, well, I'm not that bad. Or, or you say, how about this? Well, you know, I can't really afford to give to the church and the ministries of the church right now. Well, because, you know, I'm, I'm you know, uh, I'm trying to buy a house. Or I need to establish my, uh, my career or my business first. Or, you know, we need to buy a car uh, that's more reliable. And you, you rationalize away your sinful uh, tendency. And yes, by the way, greed which is when you're not generous with your money and you don't give to church ministry, it is a sin. Like, it's not a, it's not a personal life decision. <laughs> it's, it's a sin. And the Bible teaches that we are utterly helpless to free ourselves from this bondage. And the, the ways we rationalize sins can go on and on and on and on. I could spend the rest of the, the sermon describing it, but the point is we are utterly helpless to, helpless to free ourselves from bondage. Okay. So how do we get out of it? Point two, the accomplishment of our salvation. Moses says in response to the Israelites saying, hey, you should have left us alone. He says this in verse 13. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. 
The Egyptians you see today, will never, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And then, of course, God parts the sea. The Israelites walk through the sea. The Egyptians try to follow them through the sea. God brings the sea, boom, smack down on them, and the Egyptians are destroyed, and the Israelites are completely freed. Now, consider this. In that scene, in what God does, in what Moses says, and what God does, there are unique characteristics to how God saves his people that are unique only to Christianity. First of all, Moses tells the Israelites, the Lord will fight for you, you need only be still. In a nutshell, Moses is describing the principle of grace. See, the way God saves is by grace, meaning he does everything necessary to accomplish salvation. God is saying, Israel, you don't have to do anything. You just stand and watch. Verse 13, what does it say? God will do the fighting for you. That's what, what, uh, what uh, Moses says. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again because God is going to destroy them for you. It's the same thing that Jesus says, okay, after he feeds the 5,000, a bunch of people come, come to him and they say, hey, what must we do to do the works that God requires of us? And you know what Jesus says? He says, Here's the work that God requires of you. To do the work of God, you must believe in the one that he sent. That's it. What's the work we're supposed to do? Believe in the one that he sent. Me, Jesus, the son. That's the Christian faith. That's Christian salvation. You were a slave to sin. You can't do anything about it. And God comes in and delivers you from that sin. Now, you may all know this. Because you're believers, and you've known it for a long time, but the truth is, is that that's a really, really, really hard thing to believe, man. Really hard. How do you let God fight for you? Every day, you live in a world that runs on merit. Every aspect of society basically says to you, you need to accomplish it, you need to measure up, you need to earn it, you need to pass the test, whatever it is. Everything says that. And the vast majority of religions teach the very same thing. Here's how, how religions basically operate. They say, look, what you do in your life is, is you compile a good record. So you do the things that we talked about earlier. You, you follow the golden rule. You treat others the way you want to be treated. You are generous with your time and your money. You basically keep your nose clean, pay your taxes, be good to your family, be good to your wife and your husband and your children and, and, and anybody else in your life. And then at the end of your life, you will have compiled a good refer, record and then you give that record to God and God will evaluate that record and if the good stuff kind of outweighs the bad stuff, God says, all right, you're in. And the gospel comes along and it says, that's completely wrong. You can't compile the good record because you are a slave to sin. You are controlled by your sin. You will continue to sin. And as you do that, your record of sin will always be greater than your record of righteousness. And therefore, you need to stop trying to prove yourself. Stop trying to accomplish anything. You need only be still and receive God's salvation, what he has done on your behalf. And that is super hard to accept because we are wired to, to earn things ourselves. And we are raised to earn it ourselves. And so we struggle with this concept. Look, 
Every single one, I won't speak for everybody here, but I'll try to speak for a lot of you. Because I don't think I'm all that much different from you. And the, the truth is, is that most of us, we feel really close to God when we've had a good day. You put in a good day at work, you were attentive to your family, you helped an old lady cross the street, and you're feeling like, yeah, God loves me, and we got a good relationship. And then when you have a bad day, when you're kind of selfish and you snap at your family, and maybe you were kind of a little lazy at work and didn't get everything done that you said you would get done, you feel like mm, your relationship with God is in the pits. Because you're wired to believe that your relationship with God is dependent upon your behavior. But the gospel is so opposite. The gospel, how does it op? Where am I? Yeah, you need to only be still. Oh, but the gospel operates differently. This is the second unique feature. Um, I got this from this language from Tim Keller. I love the way he says it. The way that God saves, which is unique, is that he saves through a decisive act of grace. It's a decisive act. Now, basically, he's describing the doctrine of justification, but I do like the language that he uses, so we're going to use it right now, this decisive act of God. You see, when the Israelites are on one side of the Red Sea, they're under the sentence of death. Yes, God has led them to the edge of the Red Sea, but Pharaoh's coming, sin is coming, and their desire is to destroy them. They want to take them back or kill them. They are within reach of their old master. But once they pass through the sea, once the Israelites are on the other side and God drowns their enemy, they're no longer under the sentence of death. They're completely free. That's why Paul says that in Christ, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus our Lord because you pass from death to life. Jesus actually says that very thing in John chapter 5, 24. He says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. It's the same thing. The point is this. When you put your trust in Jesus, you go from death to life in a moment. In a moment, in an instant, there is no journey towards enlightenment required. There is no cycle of reincarnation where one life you live, you live it a little better than the last one so that you can free yourself from the cycle. No, no, no. In one moment, bam! You were out, now you're in. There's a decisive change in status. And this is what that means, friends. It means that Christianity is not first and foremost a change in character. If you haven't been listening, start listening. Because this is really, really, really important. It is not first and foremost a change in character. It's not. It's not first and foremost about becoming a better person. You know how many people believe that Christianity is basically about becoming a better person? Read the history of Israel after this event. They were terrible leading up to this. God is rescuing them from slavery that they've been living under for centuries. And they're complaining and whining. And they get through to the other side. And you know what they do? They complain and whine. They're no better. But they're still rescued. The gospel is not about being a better person and about self-improvement. It is about going from death to life. 
That's what the gospel is primarily about. Is it about becoming more like Jesus? Sure, it's about becoming more like Jesus, but it doesn't start with becoming more like Jesus. It starts with going from death to life. In other words, God loves you right now if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. In this moment, he loves you as much as he will love you when you are perfect in the new creation. It's true. He delights in you in this moment, right now, as much as he will delight in you when you never commit another sin in your life and all you do is perfectly obey him and perfectly praise him at every moment with every breath you take. He will not love you more then than he loves you right now. He will not. Imagine a four-year-old little girl from Russia gets adopted by a Canadian family and she comes to Canada, and there's lots of things she has to learn. She's got to learn a new language because she doesn't know English. She's got to learn the names of her new siblings. She needs to learn how to eat Canadian food. Is there such a thing as Canadian food? Maybe. I don't know. Beaver tails? She has to learn the customs of the country, but she also has to learn the custom of her new family. All of that has to happen, but it's all happening after the adoption. The adoption is done. She's one of them. She's part of the family. She has been, been united to that community. It is a change of status that elicits the change of behavior, not the opposite way around. Oh, I want to go after this more and more and more and more. What it means, guys, is that you can know that God loves you right now without ever having passed a test, without ever having earned anything, without ever having accomplished anything. The verdict is in. God loves you and delights in you. That's what it means. To stand still, you see, to, to watch God fight for you, means that as you live your life, as the devil comes in and tries to, tries to undermine your faith and tell you, you're not good enough for God. You're still a sinner. Look what you did last week. Look what you did yesterday. Look what you did during the church service. I can't believe you were thinking those awful things during the sermon. And you call yourself a Christian? There's no way that God could love you if that's the way you behave. And you say to the devil, shut your mouth. I am not saved because I thought a certain way or acted a certain way or behaved a certain way. I've, I'm saved because my God acted a certain way and behaved a certain way and accomplished a certain thing for me now and always. Now that's that's risky stuff, eh? Minister preaching like that, that's risky. Am I just basically giving you guys license to sin? Knock yourselves out, guys. Doesn't mean a, different, doesn't mean a thing anyway. God loves you anyway. Of course not. The Apostle Paul was accused of the same thing. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? Sweet! And of course he said, no, by no means. What is the ultimate motivation for behavior change? The unconditional, inexhaustible, sacrificial love of God demonstrated in the death of Jesus Christ for your sin. That's what's going to ignite you and me to change. When you sit here and don't think to yourself, oh, I got to clean up to make God happy, but you sit here and think, I didn't clean up a bit and God is more happy with me than I could ever imagine. That is what warms your heart and makes you say, it's time to obey.
And you think to yourself, well, that takes a tremendous amount of faith. How in the world am I going to do that? Well, I, this whole sermon is probably basically based on something Tim Keller said at the Gospel Coalition Conference in 2017. I don't remember everything he said, but I really remember this part. I was sitting there when he preached on this passage, and he said this. Never will I forget this. It was so funny and so true. He said, you know, all, there, all these... All these uh, all these people, all these Israelites, had to walk between walls of water through the Red Sea in order to be saved. So you do have to act on what you believe, right? So they walked through, and he said some of those people, as they walked through and they saw these high walls of water, they probably looked around and they thought, yeah, baby, that's our God. Look what he can do. Eat your heart out, Egypt. Woo! Feeling like they're on top of the world and they have all the confidence in God that, that, that you'd expect. And then there were another group of people who maybe had a bit of different personality, I don't know, but they saw the walls of the water and they were walking through the, the Red Sea on dry land and they were thinking to themselves, we're all going to die, we're all going to die, we're all going to die, we're all going to die. And here's the beauty of the gospel, friends. This is what makes, like everything makes the gospel great. I know I say that all the time, but this really makes the gospel great. It's not, it's not the strength of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith that matters. That's what matters. The strength of the thing you believe in, not your belief. Some of those people were saying, yes, God, we trust you with all our heart. And some of those people were saying, oh, God, please don't let me die. And yet they all walked through the sea on dry land. Okay, last point. Very quickly. <sighs> what? was the means of our salvation. Remember I said last week, um, Moses is this interesting character, right? He's a mediator. He's a go-between. And what we see in this passage is, is that he's a go-between the, between the people as, as God's representative to the people, but also as the people's representative to God. So he represents the people to God, but he also rep represents God to the people. And so... When you look at verse 15, it says, God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Well, Moses didn't cry out to God. It was the Israelites who cried out to God. And yet God is saying, why are you crying out to me? Why? Because he is, Moses is so identified with the Israelites that when they screw up and sin, Moses is held culpable too. But then in the very next verse, he says, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. So now God says, I'm going to use my power through you to rescue the Israelites. And so he's both the representative of God to the people as well as representative of the people to God. Now, we don't have time to talk about how he's representative of God to the people in depth, but let me just explain to you how he's a representative of the people to God or or what this points to. When the people of Israel put their trust in Moses, they went through the, through the sea on dry land. It says in verse 31 at the very end, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Well, many centuries later on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus went up the mountain and he was hidden by a cloud. And while he was on that mountain, he was visited by Moses and Elijah. And Luke tells us that the three of them discussed Jesus' departure. But when you look at the actual Greek word that Luke uses there to describe this meeting, it's the word exodon. 
they were discussing Jesus' exodus. And you say to yourself, well, where did Jesus go on an exodus? Well, in another place, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and they want a sign that he is the Messiah. And he says, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. Because you see, one greater than Jonah is here. And you're shake, scratching your head, and you go, what do you mean, sign of Jonah? Well, you look at the story of Jonah, and you discover that he was on a ship on the Mediterranean Sea that was about to be shipwrecked because God was bringing a storm against it. And Jonah said, throw me overboard. If you throw me overboard, everybody will be saved. And they did just that, and they were saved. See, Jesus is identifying himself with us and with the people of Israel because he's saying, I am going to have my exodus. And when I am overcome and overwhelmed by the ocean of God's wrath, when I am drowned in God's judgment on the cross for sinners, for slaves like you and me, you will be redeemed when you put your trust in me. This is the story of your life. Jesus accomplished for you exactly what you could not do for yourself. It's God's signature move, just like he did with the people of Israel in, in the Old Testament. He does for you and me in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. It's unbelievable. And there's so much more. Oh, man, if I could tell you what, about what... Okay, I'll tell you really quickly. In, John, in 1 Corinthians 10, the apostle Paul refers to this incident... The crossing of the Red Sea. And you know what he says? He says, the people were guided through the Red Sea by the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. Okay. And they were taken through the desert with the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. But you know what he says? He says, the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke, that was Jesus. That was Jesus. The second person of the Trinity was guiding them. And in Acts chapter 2, we read that when the Holy Spirit came down on the first Christians basically. He came down in what form? Fire. And if Moses had been there in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came down in fire, he probably would have said, see, he's doing it again. And you, if you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in you so that you are being guided through your life towards the promised land by the same Jesus through the Holy Spirit that guided the people of Israel. Is this book not unbelievable? Come on, come on. 40 different authors, 2,000 years, all cobbled together, and it has that thread? Unbelievable. There's no way that this is just a book written by a bunch of people reflecting on the divinity. You cannot explain it away like that. This is God's word. This is God's revelation of how he deals with people like you and me. And you know how he deals with us? He deals with us by grace. I, the Lord, will fight for you. You need only be still. Please pray with me. Father, I didn't do as good a job with this message as I would have liked, but that's okay because you're, you're the one preaching to your people ultimately. And I pray that each one of us would... Just leave this place with awe, in awe, in awe of your son and all he has done and in awe of you and how you rescue us and how we need to do nothing but just be still. You fight for us and you continue to fight for us as we face hardships, as we face trouble, as we face suffering, as we face fear. You fight for us. And we can trust that.
Thank you, Jesus, for all you have done for us. Amen. Friends,